0: From MDMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams.
1: Because at the end of the day, sickness doesn't wait for a brick and mortar facility to be open. And our firm belief is in is in meeting those consumers where they are. And you know, meeting them where they are might mean 9 p.m. on Christmas Day.
0: That's Dave Dukaram on the benefits of in-home care. We'll hear more from Dave and Anne-Maria Ponte on the technological impact of the in-home model, their thoughts on the patient versus consumer debate, and how house calls can decrease ER visits. But first, a word from our sponsor. MGMA 20, the financial conference, is right around the corner, and we've got an exclusive discount for podcast listeners looking to join us March 5th through 7th in Nashville. Use the code POD20 at registration to save $200 and reserve your spot at an industry-leading event designed to help medical professionals run a more profitable and efficient practice. Whether you're a CFO, accountant, physician, consultant, or other related position, the Music City is where you'll want to be. To learn more or to register, visit mgma.com tfc 20 And don't forget to use the code POD20 to save $200. Once considered a relic of the past, in-home health care has re-emerged as a popular and cost-effective option for patients seeking non-urgent medical attention. Today, more and more seniors and patients of other demographics are choosing to swap the ER or waiting room for the comfort of their own living space, all with a simple call or click of a few buttons. We're joined this week by Dave Dukaram and Anne-Marie Aponte, who are experts on the in-home care model. Both hail from the Colorado-based organization Dispatch Health. Dave is Chief Administrative Officer, and Anne-Marie is Senior Vice President of Partner Strategy and Success. In just more than a week, Dave and Anne-Marie will be part of the speaker lineup at the Financial Conference, MGMA's first of three spring shows. Dave and Anne-Marie, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: Um, Dave, let's start with you. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your healthcare journey, uh, what your path has looked like, and and really what you're focused on these days.
1: Sure, happy to. Uh, So career-wise, I've really spent equal parts uh, in medical group management, in hospital administration, and with uh, health tech companies. My career has led me to uh, a healthcare delivery model that's, uh, that's pretty unique, and that's where I spend the majority of my time uh, professionally now, uh, and really have been able to build on both provider experience and hospital experience uh, to cobble together uh, a tech-enabled uh, house call delivery model that's doing some unique things in the marketplace.
0: Okay. Thank you for that. And we're going to touch on in-home care quite a bit here today. Um, Anne-Marie, wanted to hear from you as well. Just tell us a little bit about your journey. I know that um, talking offline with you, you were telling us that you're involved quite a bit with uh, partnerships um, for your company and other uh, health systems and health groups out there. So tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right, um, so today at Dispatch Health, I lead strategy for our health system partnerships in particular, um, which is a lot of fun, they're really exploring how to leverage um, adjunct services like ours to just kind of complement their, um, the care continuum for their patients, uh, but prior to coming on, on board with Dispatch, I've uh, my 15 years in healthcare have really uh, run the gamut. I've spent time in pharma with employers, payers, health systems, um, and and I really appreciate just having seen the the industry from every one of those angles. But I think where um, I was really drawn to Dispatch just because I, I I think all those years spanning all those spectrums has really convinced me that. Um, the provider is the most trusted party from the lens of, of the consumer, from the patient's perspective. And so I'm pretty excited about not just what we're doing about this, uh, at Dispatch, but um, some broader work happening in the industry to better satisfy the needs of the consumer today.
0: Yeah, and we're going to touch on a lot of those topics, on, on those partnerships, on how all of this fits together, because it's, it's so interesting. In-home care, it's... It, on one level, we're not thinking of that as a quote disruptor to healthcare. Uh, it's it's in many ways it's going back in time to the way we were cared for and and the way that the healthcare community cared for people uh, decades ago. But now it's it's being introduced by your company by other companies that they're seeing the need uh, to do that once again. So I, I wanted to. Get some background on that for a little bit. What were the factors then? What did um, you guys see uh, that indicated to you that consumers were ready for that again, that they were ready for um, their healthcare providers, their healthcare professionals to make those house calls again? Yeah, it's
2: a great question um, and one that we talk about often. I think there are kind of three macro level trends that we think have all kind of come together at this, at this where we are today. And those are things like um, just the unsustainability of healthcare spend. I mean, that just, it creates the natural need for new solutions. Um, core to what we do uh, and what you see in a lot of in-home care models is um, uh, really focusing on our senior population. So um, we certainly have an aging population, we know that. Um, 9 million seniors are going to be homebound in the next uh, 10 years and that certainly warrants new solutions that can meet them where they are and the third thing we talk about is just uh, the growth of consumerism and the the, uh, growing demand for on-demand so you add those three things up and then you wrap it all up in technology that I think uh, makes the timing really natural um, for us to um, explore what we could do in this space Dave,
1: so what would you add? I would say you're, you're spot on, Anne Marie. I think you know the the demand, the consumer demand, and the uh, the rapid growth of of models like Uber and Netflix and things that put uh, things that put products or services at consumers' fingertips really have changed the the framework of how consumers think about healthcare and why can't they get. The same thing from their healthcare providers, um, and the, the factors that Anne Marie outlined certainly is positioned in home care providers well, um, to to fill that need.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I, the thing that's so interesting about this on demand model you you mentioned Netflix, you mentioned Uber. Um, I have an Uber story from this past week. I was in Orlando and I was on the the Disney site there where there's so many different buildings. And when Uber and Lyft and all those guys work, they work really well. And we called a lot of Ubers and Lyfts while we were in Orlando. But we had one where we could see the car and we could see it circling around where we were and they could not find us and we called them and we texted mm-hmm. them and there were some issues in that communication where we finally after waiting a really long time and being almost like we almost just said look I'm going to go walk out to where you are cuz you <laughs> you can't seem to make this one little you know dogleg turn here to get into where we are it was very frustrating as a consumer there how do you how do you make those adjustments how do you ensure cuz certainly when you've got a healthcare situation You don't want somebody to um, be waiting and not have you uh, be able to respond in, you know, the time needed. So talk talk us through that then. How do you get around those logistical, potential logistical problems, and how do you make sure it's a smooth transition there?
1: Sure. So the key to many of these delivery models is technology and the ability to have technology that connects uh, consumers and providers in in the form largely on the consumer side of cell phones. We hold very powerful computers in our our hands on a daily basis, and um, we leverage a technology platform to make in-home care possible. So we describe ourselves as a tech-enabled house call provider, like many in the space. Um, And in providing those tech-enabled house calls, you can do everything from to care, to complete some demographics, uh, to provide insurance information via a, a mobile app or our website. Uh, in a model that treats high acuity patients like ours, we uh, do insist on risk screening that's conducted via telephone. So we guide you through a risk screening protocol with someone who's trained to administer it. We have uh, nurses, uh, providers, nurses, nurse practitioners, and physicians in the background who secondarily screen those patients as needed. Um, but it's it's all it's all geared towards making sure that patient's right size, that patient's care is right sized, that patient's safe to wait. And then we have a logistics platform that kicks in immediately after that does the Uber portion of our business. So mm-hmm. that's, the, uh, that's the portion that says this is the right provider team that has the right skill set that's in the right geography. Uh, they're all providers that are, that are employed by our group. I think that's a, a big differentiation too, compared to an Uber contracting model or a Lyft contracting model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, a big piece of this is, is real-time, the ability to get real-time updates. So, you're getting real-time updates via text or, or phone calls uh, that speak to the ETA, uh, that's, that provide patients tuck-in instructions while we're on our way. Um, that let patients know what to expect, really, and what they should have prepared by the time we get there. So, uh, key to this is the underlying technology, but several layers on top of it that maintain safety and high touch. Mm-hmm. So that's how I would describe, you know, how we how we take medical care on the road.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, as consumers, we've <laughs> probably all experienced that uh, check-in. Time frame, say it's a a TV provider or phone provider who says, yeah, we'll be Mm -hmm. there between 12 and five. And you're going like, you've just ruined my day. I mean, I don't want to sit here from 12 to five. So give us an idea. What's when you're talking ETAs here, what's typical? What's the consumer experience from that side of it? What are what kind of information are they getting?
1: So the the um, The answer varies depending on markets and time of year and saturation of those markets. Um, so my answer, what I mean by that is my answer during flu season in a market like Las Vegas would be very different than my answer in July in a market like Boise, Idaho. Um, meaning that the the saturation at like, like any other providers, right? We don't do surge pricing like Uber but we do experience a stochastic arrival pattern that we can't always, uh, we can't always resource immediately. Um, we have built a, a fair amount of flexibility into our model. Uh, and what I can tell you is the other lever we deploy is one where in, in screening patients, we make sure that they're appropriate to wait. So time-sensitive conditions are usually screened out. The the patients who are put on our board are clinically appropriate and clinically vetted to wait that period of time. We're generally getting to patients in in one to two hours. We're not saying, you know, please reserve your entire Tuesday for us. Um, And there is a little bit of dialogue. So we have patients who call us and say, I'd like to be seen after work, or I'd like to be with my parent when you're going out to see them. Um, And our technology platform enables us to deal with um, some of those constraints. Um, we use uh, a great team of dispatchers layered on top of, uh, of the technology platform and the humans plus the tech make it all work.
0: Yeah, the yeah. the typical brick and mortar uh, healthcare provider, they might have a oh, the typical work hours, let's say seven to four, eight to five, whatever it might be. Does this allow you guys more latitude? You were saying, do you, what, what are your hours? I mean, what are the hours you uh, offer these services?
1: Again, varies slightly by market. Um, and uh, in markets that are, that are largely evolved, we find ourselves starting at, at seven or eight in the morning and going as late as 10 or 11 p.m. Um, the, the number of units we have on the road at any given point in time changes, we bring on those shifts to meet the, uh, we we do our shift mapping to meet the arrival pattern of patients. Um, And we have some on-call resources and things like that. But we, uh, as a rule, we're providing services later than traditional brick-and-mortar operators. We're providing services on weekends and holidays um, with the same hours. So that's a a significant differentiator. Because at the end of the day, sickness doesn't wait for Mm -hmm. a brick-and-mortar facility to be open. And our firm belief is in is in meeting those consumers where they are and, you know, meeting them where they are might mean 9 p.m. on Christmas Day.
0: OK. Um, one more sort of logistical type question and and just kind of giving us an idea of what's being treated and what the team is like. So who goes in house? What is it? A team? Is it one person? Who is that? And then what are the typical things that they're treating?
1: Sure. Um, I'll start, Anne-Marie, if you, if you want to add on. Um, the, we think of it as, in, in broad brush terms, 70 to 80% of what can be treated in the emergency room uh, can be treated by, by our providers. The providers go out um, as a team. And if you think about it, the, the team that screens is the beginning of care for that patient so the team that takes the phone call does the secondary screening perhaps uh watches that patient during the assignment or during the waiting period until we arrive uh the team on scene is a team that's comprised of a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant paired up with a med tech as we call them in our world of dispatch health med tech and that team of two is able to do everything from IVs to point of care labs, to staple suture glue uh, wounds, um, provide first dose antibiotics, treat nosebleeds, and a range of other uh, conditions that would have otherwise uh, gone to the emergency room. Uh, We treat in teams, uh, largely because of flow and documentation requirements. So you can imagine uh, getting a patient set set up with an IV while the uh, nurse practitioner takes a history and physical, um, you can imagine scenarios of documentation while, um, wh- while certain uh, other care is provided. So it's, it's a little bit of theater in the field. It's actually pretty interesting to, to go on ride-alongs and watch these visits happen, because it does take some in-home orchestration. And there are things we've specially trained these providers to do, where to sit, um, where to set things up, how to provide, uh, how to provide this level of care in, in a non-brick-and-mortar environment. Um, that team is overseen by an emergency medicine boarded uh, physician, uh, much like in the ER, as you would have an emergency medicine boarded physician supervising um, many advanced practice providers. We have them uh, supervising advanced practice providers in the field. They're providing second opinions. They're providing consults. Um, and and the like, and uh, the team is documenting uh, contemporaneously. So they're documenting on our electronic health record, um, and uh, we're monitor them, monitoring them through our logistics platform. Our logistics platform tells us when they get there, when they leave, um, and in the in between period, they're doing all of their work in the EHR.
0: Hmm. Um. We've all three used the term consumer a few times here. Tell us about that. I mean, there's there's a, a conscious effort, it seems, to really move, not move away from using the term patient, but to integrate consumer as well and, and adopt many of the customer service practices. You were just talking about Uber. You were talking about Netflix, uh tech companies like that that have, that have really become consumer-centric. So what's the conscious thought behind that, and, and how do you treat the, quote, consumer-slash-patient differently, at least from a communication standpoint?
2: Yeah, um, it's a concept we we talk a lot about internally, and um, uh, you hear more um, broadly in the in the industry, be being used just um, that much more frequently, and I think for us it's because um, it's that consumer behavior that ultimately drives spending. So when I think about some of our health system partners, as an example, um, you know one of the reasons why they get excited about different types of solutions um, that they can attach to outside of the hospital is. Uh, for a cost savings benefit, both to them and to the populations that they serve. And so it's not lost on us that um, we, we think about it from a consumer perspective, because um, when you hear consumer, you think about um, the, the search for better options. You think about the search for higher quality, for cost, the same way we consume other goods every day, more and more patients like me and you um, are we, our demand for um, better understanding the value of what we're getting, um, our our demand for wanting to shop, our demand for um, wanting things to come to us instead of us going to them. Those are all themes that um, we just we see every day, and we think um, you know really set the stage for solutions that can bring more care into the home, including what we do. Um, Dave, what would you uh, what
1: would you add to that? You know, I, I think you're you're hitting on you're hitting the nail on the head when it comes to this perennial debate about is a patient a customer? Is a patient a consumer? and and what's your approach and and do you let that moniker determine how you work with those populations? Um I would say as we look at the overall, uh, as we look at the health system and the unsustainability of spend, we are we're really looking at things to bend that, uh, to bend that cost curve. So things that, that drive value into some of these risk arrangements, uh, like our talk will focus on. And one of them is really tapping into that consumer behavior that's driven high ER utilization over time for conditions that could have been treated elsewhere. So you see us come back to the consumer refrain as Anne-Marie said, because the consumer behavior, I want it now, I want it to be definitive, and while it may be a a sledgehammer approach when a scalpel might be more appropriate, I know I'm gonna get taken care of because the ER can't refuse me. So um, we wrap all of those together and say, okay, if we can describe that behavior as consumer behavior, we describe the people engaged in it as consumers. So that's why you see us having that.
0: Yeah, we're at a time right now where consumers you know really have never been more in control of, of making these decisions and playing an active role in their buying patterns, their behaviors in their healthcare decisions. So let's talk about it from the cost saving standpoint standpoint then how does that factor in? Because you've, uh, Dave, I know you've mentioned cost a couple of times here. So let's get into that and, and how you break that down and, and compare it to the brick and mortar model. Where, where are the cost savings to those providers and to those uh, payers?
1: Sure. So we think about cost savings in a few categories, right, in a few different ways. Um, the first one I would start with is, is the patient view on cost. So the patient exposure in terms of their financial responsibility, uh, how much out-of-pocket they'll have, the patient investment in time and um, opportunity costs, so they have to stop what they're doing, take off work, get transportation, Um, what the patient is exposed to in a waiting room, what the patient is exposed to in terms of uh, delays in care. Um, The second category would be the actual delivery, the actual cost of delivery of that patient care in one setting versus another. So these are some hard costs. And really, I want to emphasize that it's not about house calls being the lowest cost setting of care. It's about house calls being the more appropriate uh, setting of care that can replace, that can substitute for much more expensive settings of care meaning the emergency room or potential hospitalization. Um, the third layer of this is really from the medical group perspective. So having run multiple practices, I know the costs associated with acquiring patients, and I know the costs that uh, medical groups incur through leakage. So medical groups who partner with us, who we were talking a little bit about why health systems or why medical groups partner with us, Medical groups that partner with us really see us as a complementary service that tucks patients back in to their their system, to their practice. So providing episodic care as we do means that we're not the urgent care down the street that's aligned with another network that's going to see your patient after hours or on weekends, make a referral to a competitor's orthopedic surgeon, and have that patient uh, be lost from your attribution or from your practice. So I think it's important to count um, hard cost savings, but also uh, but also some of these less hard cost savings um, that, that, are in, that are experienced by patients, practices, and then the system overall. Um, Anne-Marie, anything you'd add to that?
2: I, I would. I think the, the stakeholder I would add into the equation, and this is gonna be kind of central to what we talk about in a few weeks, um, are those um, kind of your, I'll, I'll call them your risk-bearing entities, but those are, are hospitals, ACOs, medical groups, payers, um, all the parties that are increasingly um, taking on risk for a, set of, for a, for a broad population and, and searching for the right ways to do that, the right tools and programs um, to, to ensure that they're meeting their cost savings objectives in those uh, new value-based arrangements. And it's really, Dave said something that is, that is fundamental to what we do uh, with our partners, which is making sure we're not just, um, you know, we see ourselves as providing episodic care. Um, so it's really important to those stakeholders that we're not taking away from what's, what should be occurring in a, in a primary care setting. We're not treating what, what might be appropriate for an ER. It's really taking the, the um, types of care that can more safely efficiently and cost-effectively be delivered in the home Um, and then ensuring that there's this connection back to that patient's care team which is pretty sacred to our care model you know dave described who's in the the rover that shows up to the patient's home Um, but i wouldn't i wouldn't shortchange the role that um, that patient's uh, broader care team provides i mean it's not uncommon certainly in our experience, that we're calling that patient's PCP on site or calling their oncologist on site or calling their case manager or those folks who um, certainly have a more longitudinal view of who that patient is and what's in their best interest. Um, so I think all of that, um, that continuity across all those stakeholders, um, you know, provides just this better overall experience that comes with the bonus of delivering care in a far more cost effective manner
0: yeah to ensure that cost savings are being met what are the kpis that you're studying what what are the benchmarks that you need to keep track of and and keep under control to to make sure that this is a a cost efficient and cost saving you know product and service here
2: yeah i'll uh i'm happy to go first dave feel free to chime in um there are a few uh you know like probably most healthcare organizations we are um uh as as data hungry as as everyone else is a few things that we we like to look at and really monitor on it just an everyday basis um certainly we we look at the um the holistic patient experience we put a lot of stock in in the feedback that we get from patients and and net promoter score and other kind of uh gold standard measures of of patient experience but from a cost savings perspective for us it really starts with what happens clinically um, and what doesn't happen clinically so all of the visits that we have we can look at uh, where did we divert an um, a 911 um, call that would have led to ems transport how often did we divert an ed diversion um, how often do we um, divert an unnecessarily um, op stay or an admission? Um, and we're, we benefit now from having um, uh, enough data and a rich enough sample size that we we can do some pretty sophisticated things to uh, look at um, hundreds of data points by visit to really understand what impact did this visit have, and then we can certainly look at that in the aggregate. And that's how we start to ensure that we're, we're actually achieving the same that we set out to do, which is um, taking care out of these expensive co- uh, care settings and moving it back into the home. Um, so those are, I think, those are standards. There's certainly a, a, a laundry list of things, but core to the savings discussion, it's looking at being really scientific about what care we, um, what unnecessary treatment we've avoided.
1: Mm-hmm. Really important to us has been building that capability from day one. So having data scientists on the team who uh, work with our clinicians, um, we've been able to, over our first 100,000 patients, been able to develop a proprietary model that uh, calculates based on the time of day, the ICD-10, the actual ICD-10 that was coded, and the setting of care. We've been able to develop a proprietary model that speaks to uh, cost savings estimates as to what would have happened to that patient otherwise, and then very conservatively estimate the medical cost savings. Um, so, to, to answer your question on you know how we know we're being effective, that's the standard we hold ourselves to um, in these arrangements. And what Anne Marie very well described is uh, are all the factors leading into that. So. We have a a really robust data warehouse, uh, a couple data scientists who are constantly geeking out with us, um, and then a model that that we've built uh, from scratch because it just doesn't exist um, in in the literature uh, that we've used to calculate our our performance.
0: Has there been any data uh, that surprised you once you've had enough of it accumulated, you've studied it, and then went, wow, we didn't expect this outcome, or... This has been a pleasant surprise. Has there been anything like that?
1: Yeah, let me start, Anne-Marie, and and I'm sure Anne-Marie has uh, has more. Um, My biggest surprise, frankly, came from uh, patients who we received uh, upon discharge from an acute facility. Um, So historically, part of my background was in running hospitalist programs, um, and we were under constant pressure to reduce length of stay and have the, have the competing metric of readmissions. And um, I was actually pretty amazed that in more than half of the patients we see within the, the sweet spot, 48 to 72 hours of discharge, we are uh, performing a procedure or changing a medication. Now, some of it has to do with being able to assess the home environment, being able to do a social determinants of health assessment um, on scene. But a lot of it has to do with the uptake, the understanding, the level of patient literacy uh, upon discharge, and the concern that the discharging provider has uh, as they uh, let that patient out of the acute setting. Um, so that's probably my biggest surprise. Amber, I'd love to hear yours.
2: Yeah, I. Um... I would say um, it's less about our uh, what has surprised me and with the, instead what's been really interesting is um, sometimes presenting data back to our um, health system and other provider partners sharing information with them that may they may not already have access to about their um, populations just because they're not you know physically in the home with these patients. I'm thinking about an example recently um, you know, when we're, uh, when we're in that home, we're capturing all sorts of interesting insights about fall risk and uh, other uh, lack of transportation, other social determinants that Dave alluded to. And it's been fascinating to share that information back with our partners. Um, I was presenting some data to um, a group that has a, a medical home and a population of several thousand um, patients that they're at risk for. And, uh, they were very surprised to see the num, the average number of medications that their patients were on and how that compared to the rest of the market in which they operated. Um, they were really surprised to see, um, the, the level of fall risk we captured in our, our visits with that population base. And so, um, so I'd say that's what's been really interesting. There's this whole new opportunity that I, I certainly hadn't even thought of, which was just empowering um, uh, empowering those partners with new data. You know, I thought they had all the data on their populations, but there is something so special about being in someone's home. And Dave and I know this just getting to ride along and and witness this firsthand. But gosh, the amount of information you learn about a patient um, and their barriers. Their individual barriers to care, just by um, being, you know, under that roof with them, or wherever they are, if it's a senior living community or elsewhere, um, that is stuff that you just you can't see on a claim, you can't see um, traditionally in a in a medical chart. But we're starting to uh, we uncover those nuggets, and boy, have those proven valuable for the care teams that are really responsible for those patients.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, the two of you, uh, as Anne-Marie, you mentioned earlier, you're going to be presenting at MGMA's The Financial Conference in March. Your session is is really centered around what we're talking about here. Uh, the title of it is Driving Financial Results in Consumer-Centric Value-Based Arrangements. Um, that last part, value-based arrangements, um, we've been kind of nibbling around the edges of this, social determinants of health holistic health, we're, in a way, we're getting at value-based care. So where does in-home care, what what role does it play then in that bigger picture of value-based care and, and that model that so much of healthcare is moving to now?
1: I like the way you frame it up, uh, the question, and in, in terms of what part does it play? Because we don't believe there's a silver bullet in this space. We believe that it does take a comprehensive suite of levers, uh, among which are tech-enabled house calls. Um, so that's the first point that I'd make. I think there are applications in uh, everywhere from groups that uh, have readmission penalties or systems that have readmission penalties. In this case, with a medical group audience, certainly medical groups that are participating in ACO or members of ACOs um, participating in MSSBs or, or taking some measure of commercial risk, um, at the end of the day, right-sizing care and right-sizing the spend associated with that care, by introducing a very consumer-friendly, with low out-of-pocket to patients and low opportunity cost to patients, we find ourselves with significant uptake. So that's one dimension of it. The other dimension of it is, this is a high acuity service. So we are able to lay eyes and ears and fill in the gap in the home environment that providers typically cannot get to. And we're able to do some pretty complex things. So when you think about uh, being able to nebulize patients and provide the first dose antibiotics or provide IV, uh, IV medications, you start thinking about a pretty acute intervention uh, supported by point of care labs and, and other diagnostic testing. So. That's the that's the, the combination of those two things, right? High acuity, consumer friendly. You can see how you can use that lever in right-sizing care and reducing spend.
0: Mm-hmm. Anne-Marie, did you have anything else you wanted to add to that?
2: Oh, I was only going to add that, uh, first, this is a topic that I get really excited about. Um, uh, it's been interesting over the past several years just watching the um, kind of trajectory of value-based care, which I think some people would say probably hasn't taken off as as rapidly as uh, maybe we needed to, just given the unsustainability of of uh, healthcare spend in general. Um, but I, you know, I have maybe a unique vantage point just because I am on the front lines with um, partners that are really committed to figuring this out. Um, but aren't, haven't historically been in the business of taking on risk. And so operating in these new CMS programs, um, coming up with interesting, I've seen a lot of um, health systems working with their payer partners um, to come up with new value-based arrangements. I, I get really encouraged by what I do um, by the steps that I that I see taken, even if I think the progress at a macro level isn't where we all would love to see it be. Um, but I get that much more excited when I hear um, the energy around making in-home care in general a big part of that uh, of the solution, because I think it, it ties into all the themes we've talked around about consumerism and the, the demographics of our population. All these things are, are coming together at um, this really kind of special point in time. And so um, one of the things we'll, we'll double click on um, in the conference is, and, and Dave spoke to it a bit, but it's, it's an acknowledgement that there's no silver bullets, there's no um, operating uh, well or succeeding in a value-based uh, world is not an overnight transition and so we've just unearthed a wealth of learnings about how to do that well how to find the the right patients how to engage them um, how to right size their care Dave used that phrase we use that all the time as an acknowledgement that right sizing might not always mean it's in-home care it's really matching that patient to the appropriate care setting and level um, how do you wrap it all up in technology in a way that, that achieves the cost savings that, that, um, potential that's there? And then how do you really leverage data to um, somewhat scientifically measure what the impact has been? And so those things all sound really intuitive, but actually executing on those, especially for um, uh, provider groups who just uh, weren't built that way historically um, that's been kind of a fun journey, and I think there are a ton of learnings that we can really um, noodle on and, and figure out, um, you know, how we take advantage of those going forward and how in-home care, along with a whole slew of solutions, can be part of the answer.
0: Mm-hmm. I've heard both of you get, get really excited, get really motivated when you talk about some of these success stories um, and how it's working, how it's communicating with the patient, with the consumer uh, on their terms, so to speak, uh, walk us through if each of you has a, uh, a success story or um, something you can share with us about how this is working for the patient.
1: I'm happy to share uh, a case study that, um, that that really is special to us because we, uh, we've heard from this patient She's done a couple of video testimonials for us, uh, and it's a patient who comes from our Nevada market, a 55-year-old female, who presented with cough and shortness of breath. Uh, the human toll of this is that she was so short of breath that she couldn't tolerate laying down. So this patient slept in a chair uh, for multiple days before, before calling us. She'd had multiple exacerbations, and uh, she was uh, discharged from the hospital most recently, told to follow up with her PCP in 48 to 72 hours. Um, She spoke with the MA from the PCP's office and couldn't get in, and uh, really was at the point where she was going to call 911 because she was short of breath and uh, and couldn't, um, just couldn't bear being not sleeping and and being that uncomfortable Um, we were able to um, to go into the home and uh, realize that this patient was using her rescue inhaler about 12 times a day with minimal benefit so you can you can just picture the visual here Um, we did uh, a a full exam of her Uh, we ordered a mobile chest x-ray that would that would come into our home we did a solumendrol treatment and a nebulizer treatment. And after the treatment, the patient noted considerable improvement. While on scene, we got on the phone with the primary care provider and we were able to explain what we've, what we've done. Uh, the fact that we uh, avoided a trip to the ER and potential hospitalization. And we were able to get that patient in with their PCP the next day. So I think it's a story that speaks to one, the human condition, the, the the suffering, the anxiety this patient was going through, not being able to breathe. If you've experienced it, is 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 really traumatic, um, and um, it shows one how we talked the patient back in, but two how we were able to pro- provide fairly acute care um, on scene on a mobile basis. So. Um, we were able to do counseling about smoking, uh, order her additional home meds, um, do a a comprehensive medication reconciliation of the suite of meds she was on. And um, she knew that her only rescue mechanism beyond her inhaler was not 911. And I think that in itself provided a layer of solace for this particular patient, for this particular, uh, 55 year old female. So that's a story that, um. I've been personally connected to and, and having met the individual, it feels really personal.
0: Okay. Well, Anne-Marie, Dave, I want to thank you so much for sharing these thoughts on in-home care and how it's integrating the healthcare system and healthcare in general right now. So thanks so much for joining us. It
1: was our
2: pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having
0: us. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guests, Dave Ducaram and Anne-Marie Aponte. You can hear them both speak at MGMA20, the financial conference, March 5th through 7th in Nashville. Still need to reserve your spot? Use the code POD20 while registering to save $200. Visit mgma.com slash TFC20 for more info and to register. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing from listeners about the show. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com or find me on twitter at mgma daniel mgma insights is presented by declan mcgee rob ketchum and i'm daniel williams thanks for listening